Welcome back to 15 on the 15th and our bite-sized book club series featuring podcasts designed to help you digest short articles, no more than 15 minutes of reading, we promise. This 15-minute recipe for success is a pinch of insightful reading and a dash of engaging discussion that blends together research and classroom practice. My name is Claire Roach, and I help to coordinate the ENL program at the University of Notre Dame. We learned so much from this conversation with Priscilla Wong that we decided to turn it into a two-part podcast. This is our second installment focused on Chinese students in American Catholic schools. Our jumping-off point is actually an article published just this fall in America Magazine written by an ACE grad, Anthony Zavanin, entitled The Rising Number of Chinese Students in American Catholic High Schools. Anthony's article draws attention to this growing population in American Catholic high schools and asks some very thoughtful questions. And today we are especially blessed because we have with us an expert on the subject of serving Chinese students in America. This is Priscilla Wong. She's a campus minister here at Notre Dame who has really focused many of her efforts on serving the Chinese population here at the university. Priscilla, thanks so much for joining us today. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your own journey? I was born in Yunnan, Kunming, and my parents were from Hong Kong. So I started Catholic school in Hong Kong, and um, my parents, they were from two different um, uh, hometown, a little bit north of uh Hong Kong. And it's interesting, the two dialects that they speak were so different that they, they also decided not to teach us. So so here I was born in one place that had a dialect, went to Hong Kong, then my parents had the two dialects that they didn't teach me. But then we learned Cantonese because that's where Hong Kong is speaking. And then later on, um, I came to the United States and went to college in Illinois. And my brother was a graduate student at Notre Dame at the time. And through him, I met my future husband. Um, he he later on came back and taught at Notre Dame, too. Lucky for us, because I know he was one of the most renowned math teachers here at Notre Dame. <laughs> so we're lucky we got both of you. And what is interesting is that his, he was from an area along the coast, Chaozhou, Fujian. And they have a, another dialect that I totally do not know, but that region now had a lot of business people in the United States, um, in all kinds of industries um, here. We got married and then um, went to uh, New Orleans and he taught at Tulane, I work at Loyola, and then it, we both came back to, to be at Notre Dame. So, so then I got the chance to get invited to start working with the Chinese students, which I, I just, just felt like it's just tremendous blessing to be able to be doing that. And now I meet a whole different generation of young people. And that just opened my eyes, even for, as I say, for this project, it helped me kind of think of how the world come together and how Catholic education can offer these young people something that their family and them search for. People believe in the Catholic schools. So there's a lot of excitement, and I hope that, you know, our conversation today can kind of help liberate people, propel us to just, you know, spread the good news. I take it you are an English learner. How old were you when you learned English? Um, I started ABC first grade, but it was so elementary. But uh, it's fourth grade when I started going to the Catholic school in Hong Kong. 
that's when I started having more regularly the English. Um, but it was very elementary, very elementary. What is the difference between Mandarin and Cantonese? And I, are those those are the two primary dialects? Yes. But I, are there more? 300 oh dialects. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So actually, Cantonese was a much older language, over a thousand, two thousand years, maybe even longer than that. But what happened was 1920, uh, Mandarin then became what we call the then the, the the government at that time tried to unify China, so they make Mandarin the official language. So it become it's called Mandarin because Mandarin means official. Ah. So that that was why it was first called Mandarin, and and then later on the communists took over in the forties. Then they say we don't want to call it Mandarin because Mandarin implied the old regime of things. So they call change it called Putonghua, means a general dialect, and so so they continue to want to make that become the official language. That's why people in Taiwan. Because of the political split, they still call it Mandarin. A lot of them, if you talk to people from Taiwan, they would say, oh, Mandarin, Mandarin. But if you talk to the more contemporary people from China, mm -hmm. they would call it Putonghua. Putong means common, Hua is dialect. Is it safe to say that most Chinese students studying abroad speak Putonghua? They would, they, they would hopefully at least know. I was asking that same question to my niece, who was the um, she was she happened to be really great. She is a, a a a piano teacher in Canada, and she not only that she give private lessons, she was part of the guild. So mm -hmm. she for the last twenty five years know a lot of these immigrant populations. So she said, "It's it's a mix right now, but they should know some Mandarin." So I'm thinking, you know, if a school is going to invest in, in dictionaries, that it makes sense mm -hmm. probably to I would invest just, in... I would stick with Mandarin okay. because Mandarin, the, the basic intonation is close to English, so it's easier for, for them. I would say stick with Mandarin just because now the whole effort is towards that. But I think if I'm, I'm going to glean anything from what you just said, mm -hmm. it's to be careful mm. to not assume that all of your Chinese students are the same and share the same language. And I'm sure culturally they share a lot, mm -hmm. but that your students could have very different experiences depending on where they grew up in China. Exactly. So one of the things that we've heard, yeah. we've had several ENL Hernandez fellows over the years mm -hmm. who have come to us from high schools mm -hmm. who serve Chinese students. And one of the phenomenon they've described is that very often these students score well on the TOEFL because they are very proficient, if not near fluent, mm -hmm. at written English. Mm -hmm. They can read and they can write very well. But when it comes to spoken English, the English that really helps a classroom thrive by listening, by speaking, that, that very often um, they're not fluent yet in oral English, mm -hmm. and that this has been a challenge um, for a lot of classrooms. And so I want to ask you, Priscilla, a couple questions about Mandarin to mm -hmm. English transfer. So one of the things that you said before is that Chinese does not use a tense. There's no past, present, or future tense. 
That is so true. Like even myself today, when I have to process really fast, I miss my my tenses too. Is <laughs> because then you have past participle. The tense is is a challenge even for people who have had a lot of years. So I listen to this and I'm thinking if I'm an English teacher or I'm a teacher that's specifically supporting the language development of these students, I'm going to pay a little bit more attention to the instruction of different tenses. Um, okay, so another one is that verbs are not conjugated. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I would just say I run. And if I'm running, we don't have am running. And it's to, it basically say I run now. <laughs> So it's all by the context. the The tense is indicated by terms that describe when the behavior takes place. Would that also mean that subject verb agreement? So, in other words, I run, but he runs. Is yes. there a subject verb agreement? So we don't that have a, that either. Okay, so, so it's always run, the verb never changes. The verb never changes, and it's always just that. And it's all indicated by the time phrase indication of context by context. So I know another one is um, plurals. Yes, right. There's that. There's no, no nouns are not. They don't change. No. When there's plural, so it's one, one two. chair, two chair, three chair. Same. One chair, two chair, three chair. The same thing. <laughs> so that would be another area of really helping students recognize. Um, or, or really making sure that you spotlight or highlight how nouns change based on number. Yes. So, for example, you would say one piece of paper, or one we have a character for if it's chair. So, for Chinese, we have an article before the noun to indicate. So, a human being is 一个人 but if it's an animal, is 一只狗 So that complicated for so for the child to learn English, they know that except a piece of paper. Otherwise, most of them don't have. It's either going to be a or the, yeah, or an, yeah. Okay, so these are all this. This for me as a teacher is very enlightening because now I know just a couple of the areas, and we can add a couple more.、Um, Where I I know that I'm really going to need to give my students a little bit of extra reinforcement.、Mm-hmm. Okay, so another one would be that Chinese does not distinguish the gender in the third person. What does that mean? So in writing, you can a he is different size than the she, but in the spoken language, it sounds exactly the same. So sometimes in the sentence that I have, I would say, "Oh, Claire、uh, has a blue dress on, and he has also a necklace," <laughs> because in my head I couldn't switch the he and the she and the it. They all the same in Chinese. It's they sound exactly the same. Okay, so another one <laughs> is.、Um, don't worry, Tim. I'm not going to refer to you as she.、Um, okay, so. Incomplete sentences. Now, any teacher of English would tell you we have problems with native speakers and run-on or incomplete sentences. But what are your thoughts on that? Incomplete sentences is so frequent. I still do that. My neighbor know me so well now. They complete my sentences for me because I would say something. I just assume they they get it and they do. <laughs> so I I I do not 
know how to say, oh, that's one magic cure, but to encourage the student. And I think this is where the relationship is really important. When the teacher would say, hey, this is how we notice that in your thought process that you do not complete the sentences, make sure you learn to overcome that because it is important for a teacher to say that in a person to that child is going to leave an impression because they know, ooh, it is important. Uh, in you know, to call call them out in a very caring way, but don't hold back. You know, the way to do it is to say this is important. You have to complete your sense, otherwise, people are not going to know what you're talking about. So let's use this as a segue to how sure. teachers might think about interacting with their students in the classroom. Do you think it's best? How how would a Chinese student react to pointing out or making a correction? In a whole group classroom setting, so this is go, it goes back to the um, the idea that building relationship is important. So at the very beginning, if a understanding is built with the child and say, "I'm going to want you to be successful and good," so I might call you out when that certain thing that being done that is had to be improved. So do not take it that I am trying to embarrass you. I care about you. That's why I do this. Have that understanding established at the beginning. Explain that to the parents and said, if your children are not used to it, we understand because when their language skill is not up to par, when their social skill is not quite in there yet, it is hard to be called out and say, oh, you know. However, if you lay that understanding at the beginning, emphasize and say, I really want you to excel. That's what I'm doing, and and a suggestion that was echoed by a couple of I would consider them expert. They said, actually, it is good once you have that understanding established. Is actually good in the class. Call them out by name. Ah. Invite them to say, "Hey, Sean, I would like you to give a try at answering this question." So get them to learn to speak up. That is one. One thing that they, most people that I spoke with saying that it is a bit challenging for a lot of the kids to speak up in class, but they need to learn to do that. And so with that, then hopefully the whole thing about correction and all that、mm-hmm. then is no longer an issue of it's not like look at as it an embarrassment. So in classrooms in China, are students called on? So. I I do not know about that part, but it is interesting. In China, for example, they still had the class structure. So, like forty students, they stay in the same class for the whole year. They don't go to chemistry, jump, go down the hallway. The forty fifty kids stay together all year, and so that is a relationship in that classroom、mm. that the teacher would. Different teacher would come in, so I think they, I think they probably get called on, but the environment was different. There's a different level of trust when you're with the、exactly. same student and the same teacher、yes. all day long. They still have that、uh, classroom concept, and so. Is there anything students can do,、uh, teachers can do, to make it easier for Chinese students to work in groups? To work collaboratively with other students. My understanding is that 
in the Chinese educational system, it's much more individual. There's a, mm-hmm. uh, there's less collaborative working than there is in the West. Um, and so I've heard that this can be a challenge for, for some of these students. Now, I, I, have, I think I'm going to guess what you're going to say, which is the more you can do to build trust with these students, it's it, going to pay off. Actually, it was brought up by um, a young man. He's a Notre Dame grad. He's, um, he's a Chinese-American family. His suggestion I really like. He's, he said at the very beginning, you know, the teacher would do whatever they have to do. But then he think that, and, and I totally agree, is to have an exercise that involves all students. So there's no impartiality. So you're not singling out any group, but have every group, some group have an exercise of people coming together. You know, I mean, student development, we do a lot of retreats and group activities and whatnot. When people at the very beginning come together on equal basis. So it's all about sharing. It's not about skill level. It's all about building learning to build community and then small community in that. So once people get that experience, then working in smaller groups becomes part of life. Then hopefully they understand that's how everybody's equal first. So maybe have an exercise of everybody introduce yourself, what you do, where your home is, what do you do this last uh, summer, what's the most exciting thing. So everybody, that everybody has that. So is to, to, to not to single kids out, otherwise it perceived as I'm a problem child. Oh. And other people say, oh, they, they have problems, so they got group in, over there. I just thought, wow, that's a very good insight when that young man shared with me that insight for what is worth and that's what we do in retreats you know you know priscilla and i'm hearing you say that and i'm thinking catholic high schools are so well positioned to do this kind of work with students and there's something that anthony writes in his article that i think is so good he says um that these children given the right pastoral care might be drawn into relationship with god and into relationship with others mm-hmm. um, in these schools. So I think this is such a great call mm-hmm. for all of these schools that they're doing important work. It's hard, but very often things that are worthwhile are hard. And there's such an opportunity here for learning in two directions, mm-hmm. not just in one direction, to view these students as a blessing um, in many forms. I, I benefited from the Catholic schools and it's, I mean, I just, Thing that there's just so much to be to offer. Uh, <clears throat> uh, my niece had a really specific suggestion. She's the piano teacher. She said, "Phonetic training." She said, "If there's one single thing that technically could be tapped into, so working on when I hear phonetic. you say that." pronunciation phonetic pronunciation in english this is where people get embarrassed or they get laughed at is when the enunciation was not what other people are doing especially for high school new high school kids middle school kids they can pick up they're younger but the high school kids became more self-conscious but they are the one that really could use that quick turnabout so i'm i'm hearing um I, I think this is a call to all the choir teachers. Yeah, yeah so she's, a, yes, that's what she, she also is the one that suggests the choir. I said, you, you know, completely. It's fun because I have known kids who learn Cantonese B2 
because they they like、it. the pop. The,、oh. the pop, the, they're a couple of really popular pop singer. They sing in Cantonese,、mm-hmm. and so these Mandarin kids were learning Cantonese by singing the Cantonese songs. No, it really makes you think about those vowels that you have、yes. to pronounce. Choir teachers are really well positioned, yes,、uh, to help with pronunciation. Yes, and it's fun, and it builds up, bring them into the community. Yeah, we all smile in the same language. What we can do to to help these kids play、mm-hmm. and have fun, help all of our students to play and、yeah. have fun.、Um, so,、um, yeah, thank you. So, and and talk about the Catholic school. So funny. One of my first, so fourth grade, I was in the Catholic school, but I was in the Chinese section. Fifth grade, I moved on to the English section, and the teacher had a really strong voice, so she was reading. Come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And and so in my head, I just thought, oh, okay. So she was saying that this person Jesus called us. We're the fishers. So for a long time, I thought she meant fishers, F I S H E S. And it took me a long time、oh, later that I realized fishers she meant fishermen fishermen. of、yes. men. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute, and so I could go on a totally right. I'm wondering. I'm, I'm sure every teacher listening to this right now could tell his or her own story. <laughs> yeah, of so, something lost in translation. So I just want to thank you again for your time. I feel so lucky to have been here with you. I've learned a lot today,、um, and we're lucky to have you here at Notre Dame. Oh, thank you for having me. And we want to be sure to invite all of our listeners who are passionate about ensuring that culturally and linguistically diverse children thrive in Catholic schools to apply to become one of this year's ENL Hernandez Fellows. You'll come to Notre Dame this summer for a two-week intensive summer session in July, and the rest of your courses will be taken online throughout the year from the context of your classroom. We need more teachers and principals in Catholic schools who understand language acquisition. Can practice culturally relevant pedagogy, and that have the technical skills to ensure that English learners achieve academically. Applications can be found online at enl.nd.edu. The deadline to apply to become a Hernandez Fellow is this March 31st. We'd love to welcome you into the ENL family. And then, as always, if you enjoyed this month's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to our channel, share it with a colleague or a friend. We love to hear your feedback, so please leave a review for us on iTunes and let us know what topics you'd like to cover in a future podcast. God bless. Bye.